As we turn in our Bible today, we're going to be looking at one of the great sermons that Jesus preached. It's found in Luke chapter 6, and it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. It parallels the Sermon on the Mount that you'll find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Both of these open with the Beatitudes, and both of these are addressed to the disciples. That's the, the main audience of the two. Both of these end with the parable of the two builders, but there are differences between the two sermons. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are eight Beatitudes that are listed, where we'll see today that there are four in Luke's account. And Luke also has four corresponding woes that are not found in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke's account is shorter. He leaves out the parts that deal with the Jewish law. And that makes sense when you remember that the different Gospels were written to different audiences. Matthew's primary audience was the Jews. And so the Levitical law and the things pertaining to the law were important to that audience. Where Luke's primary audience, you remember this letter was addressed in chapter 1 to a Roman official. And so he's looking generally to the Gentiles. Um, Many see these as the two same sermons, just presented from two different perspectives. Uh, But the sticking point for some is that the location is mentioned as being different. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says Jesus went up onto the mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And today we'll see in Luke 6:17 that it says Jesus came down with them and stood on the level place or plain. But that Greek word that we're going to find there is used to describe a plateau and a mountainous region. So that's not necessarily a problem especially when you remember that there is a chronology, I mean, a, a sequence of events that is taking place here. Last week, we saw in Luke six twelve that Jesus had gone up onto the mountain to pray before calling the 12 apostles. And then what we're reading about today is how he comes down to where the multitudes are on this level area. Now, the reason that I'm telling you all of this is because you will hear people tell you sometimes, well, the Bible contradicts itself. And this is one of the favorite places people like to point to. They say if this is the same sermon, uh, you have contradictions in where it took place. But this is just like when you talk to an eyewitness and then you talk to a second witness to the same event and they may emphasize different details or give you a different perspective. Remember, Luke interviewed witnesses, so he's reporting what he was told, how Jesus is coming down to this area where Matthew may have given us a perspective of watching Jesus going up. So whether you take this as the same sermon in two places or two sermons with similar content is not so much important as the content itself. I invite you to look with me now at Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26, as I read with you the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus says in Luke 6:17, well, the Luke reports, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And, there were, and, they, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured and all the people were trying to touch him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you. Your name is evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. 
But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, as we read this passage, it might be a little bit like looking at a picture like this. Some of you have seen drawings by the late Danish artist named uh, M.C. Escher. He was famous for these optical illusions. He was, he was a guy who would give you a perspective where sometimes it was hard to tell what is up and what is down. And as we read something like the Beatitudes, uh, it, it can be disconcerting for some because it seems that Jesus is turning things upside down. The things that we normally would say are up, he says are down, and the things that are down are up. So what exactly is going on here? What what does it mean when we read something like the Beatitudes and we read, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are are, uh, mourning, blessed are these various things that we would say are normally down? If I were to ask you to define what it means to be blessed, how would you do that? Most of us here would say, well, you know, you talk to somebody who says, I'm blessed. They're saying, well, it's because I'm rich, I'm healthy, I'm eating well, things are good. Somebody wrote what they call the 21st century Beatitudes, and it goes something like this. Blessed are the rich and famous, for they always get a seat in the best restaurant. Blessed are the good-looking, for they shall be on the cover of People magazine. Blessed are those who take first place in their division, for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs. Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are the healthy and fit because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. Blessed are those who make it to the top because they get to look down on everyone else. And yet what we read here, as it says, as Jesus looks out over the sick and the diseased and the crowds that are coming to him for healing, he says, blessed are you. Blessed. What does it mean? Blessed. Well, there are different Greek words for blessed. One is eulogetos. This is a a word that you'll find in the Bible, but it's only used exclusively of Jesus and God. You hear of a eulogy at a funeral, and what we do when we eulogize somebody is we bless them for who they are. And so God is blessed because of who he is. Here we find a Greek word, makarios. It was found in ancient Greek mythology to describe the happiest state of the pagan gods because they were said to be above the earthly sufferings and labors. Later, it became used to speak of common people in the sense of a positive condition that they experienced. It was often translated as happy because people associated it with being uh, comfortable or entertained by certain conditions or what we would call happenstances. Our English word happy comes from the root word happening because we say when good things are happening to me, I'm happy, right? If I get a new toy, I'm happy. If I uh, eat well and have a nice meal, I'm happy. If I get to pay off my house, I'm really happy until that extra money now has to go to something like car repairs or emergencies or some other situation, right? See, that's the problem with defining happy or blessed with what's happening to us. Because when things are good, we're high. And when things are not going so well, we go low. And we ride this roller coaster through life. 
Even if you had everything that the world has to offer, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy. Uh, Some of you have heard of the Onassis family. Uh, There was a daughter in the family named Christina and Onassis. If you haven't heard of this family, they have a worldwide shipping empire. They're billionaires. They have everything the world says is important, fame, fortune, all kinds of notoriety. And yet the biography that was written about her life is titled All the Pain That Money Can Buy. All the pain that money can buy. And in it, she says, happiness is not based on money or power. The proof of that is my family. Now, if you think her situation is isolated, I want you to think about what you see in the news. Think of the athletes, the entertainers, the the rich and powerful people whose marriages fail, who have suicides in in their family or around those that they love. Think of all the dysfunctional behaviors you're always reading about, uh, the arrests that are happening, the addictions, the various things that are uh, associated with these who the world says has everything. And yet we see on how unhappy they are. You know, it's not just the rich and famous who chase after happiness they can't find. How many of us have chased after something the world offered? And when we got it, what we found is the happiness was fleeting, right? Think about some of the stuff you got at Christmas. Is it already sitting on a shelf or buried in a closet? Or once you got that toy or tool that you've always wanted, do you you now say, well, I have to have that accessory that goes with it? That car or computer or other gadget is great until we find that there's a newer, later, greater model that just came out. And then we want that. How many of us, when we were younger, wanted to be older? And when you get older, you want to be younger. There was a guy by the name of Jason Lehman who describes this dilemma in a poem he wrote called Present Tense. He says, It was spring, but it was summer that I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter that I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood that I wanted, the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 that I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. How many times would you say that describes you? How many of us here uh, find that what we were chasing after, the thing that we thought would bring us contentment or happiness, is a moving target? We get it, and suddenly there's something else that we want. You know, there are plenty of people who are clawing their way to the top. They're climbing the ladder, and when they get there at the top of the ladder, they find it was leaning against the wrong wall. If you're looking for real meaning and joy in life, friends, it's not found in what the world offers. There was a guy that you've heard of by the name of King Solomon. He's described in the Bible as rich and prominent and powerful, as being the most uh, considered the wisest man who has ever lived. And Solomon, when he took account of everything that he had, he said that really all you need in life is God. He tells us in Ecclesiastes 2.25, for who can have enjoyment without God? 
There's another guy that you can read about in the scriptures. He's named Paul, the Apostle Paul. You'll remember before he was Paul, his name was Saul. And he was a a prominent religious leader. He was climbing the ladder of Judaism. As a young man, he was already high up in all the councils, and and he was on the fast track to be the, the next leader of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And as Paul encountered Jesus Christ on the road, he realized everything that he was pursuing in the world and as he was persecuting the church and other things was wrong. He encountered Jesus Christ who said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when he came to understand that it was the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he became a believer. His name was changed. His perspective was changed. Paul wrote the book of Philippians under God's guidance, and he tells us in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Paul found contentment not in the outside circumstances of life. Rather, he found it in having Jesus Christ in his life. If you look at that word contentment, it's spelled C-O-N-T-E-N-T to begin. The root is the content. It's not the circumstances of life around us. It's what's in us that can bring us peace. Paul was one who said, no matter what's happening, whether I'm in a prison cell, whether I'm dealing with hard things, whether I'm being shipwrecked or beaten or persecuted and all these things, he says, it doesn't matter. I'm at peace. I found contentment through my relationship with Jesus Christ. The Greek word that is used there means contained or self-sufficient. And the pagan philosophers of Paul's day said it relied on, it it spoke of human self-reliance and fortitude. But Paul said it, it is, it is referring to a divinely bestowed sufficiency. You remember in Philippians 4.13, Paul didn't say, I can do all things through Paul. He said, I can do all things through Christ. Paul's power and his peace came from God, and he offers us the same thing. As Jesus is giving this sermon uh, that we're looking at today, remember who the crowd is. The diseased, the demon-possessed, the sick, and others. And he's speaking to a subgroup there, the disciples. He's called the twelve to be followers who were already followers to be the apostles, the sent ones. And now he's speaking to the other followers who are among them. And and the people who were all there were saying, oh, if I only had more, if I had power or prestige or position or possessions, we would be happy. And Jesus is addressing them. And he says, as as hard as life is, remember, they're under Roman oppression. oppression. This foreign power is over them. They're in poverty. And they're looking at how hard it is. And they're saying, oh, if we could have an exalted position or enjoy the pleasures and popularity that money could bring us, then then we would be happy. But what Jesus is telling them is what they need most is not a change in their circumstances. What they need is a change in their relationship with God. They need to become followers. And those who are followers need to move to a higher level of commitment to understand what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. And he offers that same call to us today. And it begins with becoming a follower of Jesus. You may be here today and you've not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You think he's a great man or a great prophet, but he's more than that. He is the Son of God. And he came to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And as the one who died to save us, he offers that gift of new and eternal life to you. He says in John, through John in the Gospel of John in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
But there are people today, just as in that day, who reject Jesus, who do not become uh, sons and daughters of God by accepting him as their Savior. And to those people, Jesus spoke words of warning. Jesus says four times in this passage, Woe to you! This is a Greek interjection that is uh, defined as an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. And it, it looks ahead not just to the impending judgment that will one day come as those who have rejected Jesus will be rejected and sent away to what the Bible calls the lake of fire, what we call hell. But it also speaks of a present woe, a present sadness. Remember, as Jesus came into Jerusalem on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, it says he looked out over the city and it says he wept. He was sad that they missed the moment of visitation. And and this is the same thing here as Jesus says, woe to you. He's expressing sadness. He's addressing sadness as he sees this crowd of people who were so blinded by their pursuit of wealth or pride that they couldn't see their spiritual need. He saw people who were pursuing their pleasures over his purpose. He's called some to be his followers, some to be his, his sent ones, and he's calling on the crowd to understand that it is a sad little existence. If our whole world is wrapped up in ourselves or our possessions, and he says that's a tiny, sad little package. Now, the problem is not having nice things. It's when those things have us. Sometimes people read the Beatitudes and they say, well, all the rich people are going to hell. And, and people who are living the good life right now, well, you know, that's it. When this life's over, they're going to hell. So I'm glad I'm poor. Then they're going, I wish I was rich. Right? And so we read the Beatitudes. And we think, well, what God's doing is condemning having things in the world. But that's not what's happening. That's not what this passage is telling us. If that were the case, if being poor would bring the blessings of God, then we should all give up everything we have and live in poverty. But as you read through the scriptures, that's not what God calls us to. In fact, there's a prayer in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9, uh, the, it, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. See, God isn't saying, well, there's these extremes. You're either really rich or really poor, and both of those are bad. He's not railing against having possessions here. It's when those possessions have us. There were lots of rich and powerful people in the Scriptures who were followers of Christ. Uh, We find one of those men mentioned in Matthew 27, 57. It says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He's a follower, and yet he's wealthy. And you'll recall that Joseph of Arimathea shows up at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He and a man named Nicodemus, who was a powerful man, he was one of the Jewish leaders, he was high in the council. And after Christ was crucified and died on the cross, as followers of his, they understood what, and it says they went and they requested the body of Jesus. And they took him down off the cross, and where did they bury him? In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, this rich man. 
And as the church got underway after the resurrection of Jesus, there were, there were those who had means and, and affluence. There was a lady by the name of Lydia we find in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. It says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. Do you know what purple fabrics were? That was what royalty wore. That was such a valuable commodity. Those garments were so expensive. Rulers and royalty wore it. You had to have a huge bankroll to be able to afford what she was selling. She was a woman of immense, uh, not only affluence, but influence, as her clientele were the rich and powerful, the leaders. It says that we have this woman, a seller of purple fabrics, who is a worshiper of God. And was listening to the Lord. And he opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she becomes a follower. She moves to the next level of commitment. And it says, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This was a businesswoman who had a thriving business, lots of money. And she didn't turn around when she became a believer. And like Levi that we saw in chapter 5, remember him, the wealthy tax gatherer? Levi, also named Matthew, it says he sold, he left everything and he followed Christ. Not everybody left everything and followed Christ. You don't have to be poor and destitute, give up your, your career and, and your cash and your other things to be a true follower of Christ if you understand that those are an entrustment to be used for Christ. Lydia opens up her home. In that day, people lived in tiny little homes. You could barely get a family into the size of these homes. And she has this sprawling complex, and she opens it up and says, the church can meet here in my home. I'm a worshiper of God, and I want others to hear about him. I want others to come. They didn't have buildings like we're sitting in right now. And she provided what God had provided to her to be used for his glory. Now, some of you right now may be squirming. And you're saying, I know where this is going. Every time I come to church, the preacher always wants my money. And, and Roger's, you know, doing this roundabout way to say, uh, give, me, give me your money. Ushers, would you get ready to pass the plates again? No, I'm not doing that, Right? <laughs> I'm not talking about money today because we need your money. If you picked up a bulletin when you came in, you can look on the back at the financial report. And because of the generosity of God's people here, giving is ahead of budget. And because of the stewardship of the staff here, expenses are below budget. And so we're not in a destitute position. Now, that doesn't mean stop giving. That's not what I'm telling you. But I am telling you that if you don't want to give your money to God's work here at Wayside, then don't. We don't want your money. We don't need your money if you're like, oh, God, there's a man paying to cover charge to come to church. <laughs> Some of you look like that during the offering. I don't know. <laughs> the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, I don't want something from you. I really don't. I want something for you. I'm talking about money today. I'm talking about this today because Jesus is talking about it. We've been preaching through the gospel of Luke. We go verse by verse, and we're coming to the passage today where Jesus addresses this because he wants something for us. He wants us to be blessed, not like the prosperity false doctrine that says give to get. That's not what we're talking about. God says he wants something for us. 
As you look at what he says in Luke 6.24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Now, as I said, that's not saying that rich people are going to hell. If you walk out and you see somebody get in a nice car when they leave, uh, the bank probably owns it, first of all. But even, even if they get in a nice car and they've paid for it in cash, it doesn't mean, oh, they're on spiritual. That isn't what Jesus is saying. When he says you've received it in full, he uses a Greek word that is apeko. And this word describes the receiving of receipts where one has been compensated in full. It's not the same as Tetelestai where Jesus said paid in full at the cross where he paid the debt off. What he's saying is if you've been given something and you've been hoarding it, you've been holding on to it, you've been using it for your greed and your glory and not God's purposes, then he says you've enjoyed your reward in full. There's nothing left for you when it comes to the accounting that God will give at the end. You may be sitting here saying, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. This doesn't apply to me. You know, you don't have to be a CEO, an entertainer, a professional athlete to be rich. The World Bank has done a study of the incomes of the world, not just the U.S. And if you have a household income of $20,000 a year, you are in the top 11.1% of the entire world in terms of wealth. If you have an income of $50,000, you are in the top 1% of the entire world in terms of riches. Friends, if you have an extra set of clothes hanging in your closet, if you have food in your refrigerator, you are richer than most of the world. And so when it comes to us being rich, what God is saying is the definition of it is not, well, I'm set where I never have to work another day in my life. It's a matter of understanding. The Bible says very clearly, if you have food and clothing with these things, we should be content. Anything above that is a bonus. And as we're talking about this today, I want you to understand you can't buy your way home to heaven. This is not about, well, let me write another check and give it to somebody on the way out the door. Let me get in on God's good side. The Bible's clear you can't buy your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. You don't buy your way home to heaven. Jesus Christ bought our way home through the shedding of his blood on the cross. He paid in full the penalty of death. But what he's talking about here today is what we who call ourselves Christians, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will face a judgment when your life is over. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's called the Bema Seat. The Greek word is Bematos. And it speaks about how we will appear before this stand to be judged by the Lord. It's described in 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15. In 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15, it says God will take our life works and he will put it in the fire. And the, the things that have been wasted will burn up. But the things that are precious and valuable that have had eternal purpose will remain. It's a refining fire. You can picture gold being made. The, the, the bad dross and junk is gone and what remains is the precious metal. This Greek word bematos is actually what you see in the Olympics. The, the metal stand is the bematos. And people come and those who have performed well as an athlete are told you get a bronze medal. The better get a silver and the top get a gold. And they're, they're given these, these rewards 
for having run the race well. And we're called as believers to run the race of life. And God says when it's over, we stand before him to be judged. And he will reward those who have invested their lives and their resources into eternal things. Now, the non-believer goes before a different judgment stand. If you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, there's something called the great white throne judgment. No Christian goes before the great white throne judgment. You can read that passage in, first, in, in Revelation chapter 20, and it tells you that people will come before Jesus who is seated on the throne. And, and it says that he opens a book, singular, that's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your name is recorded in the book of life. And everybody who's there, the unbelievers, nobody's name is in the book of life because they're all non-believers, which is why it says Jesus then looks in the books, plural. And the books are the accounting books of your life where God has recorded everything you've ever done, good and bad. And you may say, well, I've lived a pretty good life. I think God's going to let me into heaven. And I don't care how good you've been, how many pages are filled with good stuff. If you have even one sin which we all do because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. So if you think all doesn't mean you, it does. And it means me. And so as God looks in the books, the accounting book, he says, oh, I see an entry here where you stole a cookie, told a lie, did whatever. And Romans 6.23 says the wages, what you owe for sin, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But everybody who's there lined up at the great white throne judgment has rejected the free gift of God. They've said, Jesus, I don't need you to die in my place. And so Jesus says, great, you get to die in your own place. You've already died once physically to be there at the judgment. So he says, you get the second death, which is eternal separation from God in what's called the lake of fire, hell. And he says, as you read there in Revelation 20, you'll see every single person at the great white throne judgment goes to hell because they've rejected Jesus and they will be rejected. So as Jesus is speaking here about woes, that's part of the impending judgment. But he also wants those who are living their life as followers of his to understand that spiritually speaking, they are bankrupt. There's not a single thing they can give to God. They are spiritually poor. We have nothing on our own that satisfies God's wrath against us. That's what Jesus did for us. He paid the penalty. You've heard that big Greek word, propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath. And that's why Jesus died. And we have to come to a place where we understand we are not self-sufficient. We are simply beggars in need of God. We have nothing to give to him. And this is part of the picture here as Jesus talks about the blessing of being hungry. In John 6.35, Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What we're to hunger and thirst for is God and his grace. We're to have that relationship. The psalmist says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for God. We're to have that longing and hunger for God, not some meal that a few hours later we're hungry again. When we accept the gift of new and eternal life, we become a child of God. As a follower of his, he then says that once we come into the family, we are called to grow deeper in our walk with him. Listen to me. You don't have to be good enough to get to God. That's like saying you have to get healthy to go to the hospital. 
Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, he loves you just like you are as a sinner far from him. But once you come to faith in him, he loves you too much to leave you like you are. And he calls on us to grow deeper in our walk with him. And that includes getting rid of the things that are not in line with our new life in Christ. The scripture is full of passages that say, put off the old and put on the new. Get rid of this and and, and grow in this. And this is what we're reading about here, where it says in verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I want you to remember a few weeks ago we looked in Luke chapter 5 at where Jesus was condemning the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees. Remember them who he said when you fast don't wear these long pale faces with ash all over and, and letting everybody know how miserable and holy you are as you're hungry. Jesus said this isn't about uh, I told you looking like the cover child for the book of Lamentations. This isn't saying, oh, all of you who laughed at a joke I said earlier are going to hell because Jesus says don't laugh. You know, we're all we're in church. Don't do that, right? That's not what he's telling us. So what is he telling us when he says, oh, woe to you who laugh? You should be mourning instead. What he's telling us, this word for mourning or weeping speaks of a godly sorrow. It means that your heart breaks with the things that break the heart of God. Does your heart break for the things that break the heart of God? When is the last time you really were grieved and wept over something you saw, some injustice, something that happened? You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, I mean in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you hear that word, confess, And it's a word that is two Greek words put together, homo, which means the same, and legeo, which means to speak or say. So confession literally means to speak or say the same thing as God says. It means we see our sin as God sees it. And when we confess it, we're saying the same thing God says about our sin. What does God tell us about our sin? He says it's wrong. It separates you from me. It breaks fellowship. And the solution to our sin ultimately is Jesus Christ who died to pay for it. But as those who have come to faith, he says, when you sin, again, you confess your sin. And he says, you see it as I see it. And the word is is repentance, is the, the theological word. And it literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repentance means you realize you're going the wrong way. You're walking away from God. You're going towards some sin. And you're going away from God. And he says you stop, you turn around, and you come to me. That's confession. It literally means you realize you're going in the wrong way and you have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And so he says we need to do that when we confess our sin. It's not just empty words. And when it says we have a godly sorrow, it says we see our sin and we say the same thing as God says about it. It needs to stop. And I need to turn from it. Jesus says, blessed is the one who sees sin for what it is and takes the needed steps. I asked if your, your heart breaks for the things that break God's. Remember, I talked about Paul earlier. Paul saw himself for who he was in the eyes of God. He called himself the chief of all sinners. 
And later, as he wrote the book of Romans, he said in Romans 7, 24 through 25, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, that's how we're set free. He not only saw himself for who he was, but he saw God's solution and he accepted it. When we weep here, we weep for our sins, repenting of what is wrong and what we've done. We weep for the sins of others, lamenting the dishonor that it brings to God. We weep for the lost, realizing that as lost people, they will one day be separated from God for all eternity. We we weep for those who suffer. We grieve over natural disasters. We, we, We grieve and weep over injustice. And we weep for our loved ones who have departed this world knowing we've lost people we love and we won't get to see them again here on earth. And yet Jesus said in verse 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Because as a believer, we understand this world is not the end. There is a day coming where when we die, we go before God in heaven. We are welcomed home. And as we walk through the gates of heaven, we are glorified. Our sin nature is done away with. We never sin again. As we walk through the gates of heaven, we know that we will have a reunion with loved ones we've lost who know the Lord. And we get to see our Lord face to face. We rejoice because we know that the injustices of this world will one day be dealt with. And God will make all things right. The last woe in verse 26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Now, this isn't saying you should go out and try to get people to hate you or speak badly about you. Some of us are doing a pretty good job of that already. That's not what this is saying. This is about seeking the approval of people rather than the approval of an audience of one. This is where we want the applause of of the world and the popularity instead of the applause of heaven. And what God says is you need to uh, be those who have an understanding that this world is not what it's all about. You can read through Philippians. Paul writes about the great kenosis passage there in chapter 2 where he speaks about how Christ emptied himself, left his throne in heaven and came to earth and took on the form of man and how he continued to humble, humble, humble himself, ultimately going to the cross to die for us. And it says there, have this attitude among yourselves. The Beatitudes are telling us to have the attitude of Christ. Be this. And as we do these things, 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everybody who humbles themselves will be exalted at the right time. Jesus ultimately is given the name above all names. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I want to end today by giving you an illustration that I hope will help you understand what we've been talking about. So I've got a rope here, and I want you to think of this rope as representing time. And you can see it's a long, long rope. And time is infinite. Time is eternal as we're talking about this. So you can imagine this rope is going on forever and ever. But right here at the end of this rope, you see a little black piece of tape. And this black piece of tape I want you to think of as representing 100 years. Some of us will get about 100 years here on earth. We actually have uh, two people in our church that are over 100. 
So some people are on the other end of my little hundred here, right? But others are like the babies that we dedicated today that are right here at the beginning. Some of you in your hundred years are, are students in school, so maybe you're here. So some are, you know, into your 20s and 30s, so you're moving through this section. Others have crossed the halfway mark at 50. And then there are others that are on the other side here. There was a lady in the first service who said, Pastor, I'm 96 years old. I said, okay, Ardell, you're right here, right? <laughs> and so we're moving through this time. And many of us spend our dash, you know, the dash on a tombstone, born here, died here. This is our dash. And many of us spend our hundred years here on earth all about grabbing what we can. It's about power, position, possessions, comfort. And that's how we're spending our life. And what Jesus says to us today is, I want you to realize that this, this little bit of time is nothing. Because when your life ends here on earth, you get another hundred years in heaven. And then you get a thousand. And then you get a hundred thousand. And then you get a million. And then you get a billion. And then you get a trillion. And time just keeps going and going. And he says, how you're spending your life, what you're doing with your things on earth. So many of us think this is all that it's about. And what Jesus says is, I want you to have the long view. I want you to understand what you do with this time affects this. In the millennial kingdom, the thousand years, where the Bible says there will be rewards and responsibilities here on earth. And then on into eternity, into heaven. And I want you to consider this morning what you're doing with this little bit of time you have right now. That's what the Beatitudes are calling us to. To see ourselves as followers of Christ, to understand that what we have now affects what things will be for all eternity. So as we close in prayer, I want you to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. I want you just to think about how you're spending your life right now. I want you to think about what you're investing in. Some of you may need to think about where you will be for judgment. Will it be the great white throne judgment? Maybe you've been thinking it's what you do that gets you to God, being good enough, giving money, doing stuff like that. Friends, that has one destination, separation from God for all eternity. But he calls on the rest of us to come to him. Those of us who have understood and accepted the free gift of God, and he offers that to you today. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Remember that word confession? You say the same thing as God says. I know you're who you said, Jesus. You are the Lord. You came to earth to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death for my sins, and I accept you as my Savior. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So maybe this morning in your prayer, it needs to be, Lord, I'm coming to you. I recognize I need you and I accept your gift of new and eternal life. And for others of us, our prayer needs to be, Lord, rearrange my priorities. Help me to live my life with the long view in mind. Help me to truly seek to be blessed, not about the stuff of this world that makes me happy for a short time. But Lord, would I be a good steward of what you've entrusted to me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll close with the final song of worship. Lord God, we thank you for your word that calls us to consider how we're spending our dash, what we're doing with this life we have here on earth. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you came and you gave your life in order to give the gift of eternal life to all of us. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never received your Son as their Savior, this would be the day where they turn to you and become a child of God, accepting your death in their place and being adopted into the family. And, Father, for the rest of us who have come into your family, would you keep us from being so blinded by earthly possessions that we fail to see the eternal treasures we cannot lose? Forgive us, God, for those times where we've worked for greed and gain and forgotten to use things for you and your purposes, God. Help us to live a life, Lord, that fulfills your purpose rather than our selfish pleasures. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life. May we use our lives to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Will you stand, please, and sing this closing song of worship?